Amen. Well, Psalm 62 and the, psalms we, the songs we just sung together uh, remind us the Lord is our rock and our Redeemer. He is our solid ground and our Savior. He comes to us with mercy and He saves us out of our trouble. I'm so thankful that this is the way our God is because we are often easily shaken by the trials and tribulations of life. And we need help. We cannot save ourselves in these times of trouble. And so with David this morning, we look to God to be our salvation. We look to Him to be our help in our time of need. We don't know exactly what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm. Many of the psalms have in their title or in their introduction some clue as to what David is going through. All we have from this psalm is that it was written to the chief musician, meant to be used in worship in Israel. It's written specifically to one chief musician, a chief musician named Jeduthun. He's mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1, one of three chief musicians serving at the time. This was late in David's reign as king. But beyond that, we don't know exactly what it is that David is facing. Now, there were some trials that came late in David's reign. One was that his son Absalom committed treason, tried to steal the kingdom from David. And so maybe that difficulty that David is facing as he writes the psalm. Another was that at the end of David's life, as he was ready to hand the kingdom off to Solomon, his son Adonijah tried to steal the kingdom from Solomon. And so Maybe it's that difficulty that David is facing. Either way, this is a challenge, and David is faced with these enemies who are trying to tear him down. He mentions that in verses 3 and 4. And yet David says, I am not shaken. I rest in the strength of God. You may have noticed as we read the psalm that it has kind of an interesting structure. There's, like a lot of songs, there's a chorus or a refrain that is repeated. Hopefully you notice as we were reading that verses 1 and 2 are extremely similar to verses 5 and 6. There are a few slight changes, but in those psalms, or in those refrains, David talks about how his soul waits silently for God. There's actually just one word that's translated wait silently. It means to be still. It means to stop moving, to be at rest. And so David is saying that his soul is actually at rest in God. He's at peace. He's quieted. Even though these difficulties are going on around him, David finds rest in God. Now, we'll study in more detail what this refrain means and all its different phrases. But in the next phrase, David calls God his rock and his salvation. Those two word pictures become helpful for us throughout the psalm. Rock and salvation. And then in the final portion of the psalm, if you look down at verses 11 and 12, David concludes by praising the Lord in this way. He says that power belongs to God, and to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. That word mercy is a common word in the psalms. We've studied it many times. It's the word hesed. It means God's steadfast love, His committed covenant love. So at the end of the psalm, he attributes to God two things, power and love. And I think these two correlate with God being our rock 
and our salvation. And so through the psalm, we have these sort of two parallel ideas that are meant to calm our souls so that we are not shaken in our time of trouble. That God is our rock. He's our powerful one with infinite power and strength. He is immovable. But at the same time, He's our salvation. Because of His steadfast love, He uses that power to move toward us and to help us in our time of need. Is there any more encouraging combination than the fact that our God is both powerful and loving. That He is our rock and our salvation. And so steady your soul today on these truths as we think of God, our rock, and our salvation. This is what David does. He steadies his soul on the fact that God is his rock and and his salvation. And friend, you as well can steady your soul on God, your rock, and salvation. Why is it that we can steady our souls upon the Lord? David gives us sort of three reasons as we work through this text and understand the the ways that we steady our soul on God. You'll notice as we work on verses 1 through 4 that God's strength, God's power and love make enemy attacks seem absurd. This is, I think, what David is pointing to in verses 1 through 4. That as he looks at God's strength, God as his rock and salvation, the attacks of the enemy begin to seem absurd, pointless, futile. You may notice that in verse 1 of Psalm 62, David actually says that his soul is at rest. He's already waiting at peace on the Lord. He's calmed, he's quieted. Truly, my soul waits for God. See, David is already looking to God's character and experiencing the peace that comes from it. He calls God his rock, his salvation, and his defense, all there in verse 2. And as a result of those things, he concludes at the end of verse 2, I shall not be greatly moved. It's connected to that idea at the beginning of the verse about not being still before the Lord. He's not going to be shaken. He's at peace. He's at rest. He will not be shaken because God is his rock, salvation, and refuge. I want, to note, I want you to notice for, for a moment the, the, the progress of those three terms. Begin with the idea of rock. And so here you can imagine David, kind of like he describes in Psalm 61. Do you remember studying that one last week? Where David talks about, he feels like he's at the ends of the earth. His heart is overwhelmed. And it's almost as if he looks up and says to God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Maybe he wrote these two Psalms around the same time. And so now, still looking up, David says, oh Lord, you are my rock. And so David is standing in his trouble, looking up to God, his rock, seeing God as the source of power and strength, the one who is able to save him out of his trouble. But he's not just his rock. He moves next to the idea of God being his salvation. This is where God's love, combined with His power, steps in and helps David. And so here you can picture not just some high rock, but that God has come down to David in his trouble to be his rescuer, to be his savior, to be his help. But it doesn't end there. Because power plus savior equals something else. And David finally says, God, you are my refuge. 
Because when you have one who is both powerful and one who loves and saves, you have a safe place. You have a refuge. And so here David has been lifted out of his trouble and is present with the Lord under the wings, like Psalm 61 describes, of God his protector. So these three truths are beautiful. David's down in his trouble looking up to his rock. The rock comes to him and saves him and then lifts him up and makes him his refuge. Our God is an incredible God. Think about those aspects of his character. This is the way our God is. And so, of course, David concludes at the end of verse 2, I will not be shaken. In verse 3, he makes an interesting turn because he here begins to talk about his enemies. They're still present on his mind. They're still real in his life. He's facing this trouble. But he asks it almost as if it's absurd that they're still attacking him. He says in verse 3, how long will you attack a man? And I think David's describing himself here. He's the man. And that's sort of the contrast here. God is God. He's the rock, the salvation, the refuge. So why are you still wasting your time with me? David's asking. It's futile. Why are you still trying to attack me? The next phrase in the New King James is translated, and the, the verb can be taken as active or passive. So that phrase, be slain, here is taken as passive. And so it's as if David is saying, you, my attackers, will be slain. But it can also be taken as active. You may notice that some of your translations translate it that way. The idea there is that they keep trying to slay him. They keep trying to put him to death. And so I think this may be even better translated as another rhetorical question. Will you keep trying to attack me? And then secondly, do you keep trying to slay me? All of you. They're trying to tear him down like a leaning fence or a tottering wall. Here you can imagine, you know, an old fence that the the concrete posts in the ground have gotten old and it's begun to tip a little bit. Or maybe a stone wall that the base stones have begun to crumble and you feel like you could just kind of walk up and just give it a tap and it would just fall and crumble. And David says, you're viewing me this way. And in reality, it's true. He's just a man, but God is his refuge. And so it's futile for these enemies to attack and to try to take him down. Verse 4, he describes them further. He says, they only consult to cast him, I think referring to himself, to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies, so, so slander is a part of their attack on him. Speaking against him, this would have been true both when Absalom rebelled against David as well as when Adonijah tried to take the kingdom and claimed that it was what David wanted. So there are lies and slander involved in what they're doing against David. But not only that, as you look at verse 4, he says, they bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. So some of what they say is lies, and other things they say sound really good. But they don't mean it from their hearts. In fact, they have quite the opposite intent, to curse him and to take him down from his place as king. And so here the Selah causes us to pause. This is the end of the first section of this psalm as David begins by resting in God and yet acknowledges that his enemies are still a problem. 
But it's with this confidence in God that reminds him, you know what? Your attacks are absurd. And compared with the strength of God, it's futile. It's point. Why do you keep trying? God is in control. Maybe you've been in a scenario where your efforts felt pointless. It felt absurd. It felt worthless. I was uh, reminiscing uh, this week on a time I spent at a camp. I spent a summer uh, traveling for Faith Baptist Bible College, and we go from camp to camp and uh, help out however we could at that camp, often counseling the teenagers. Some of you have done something similar to that. In fact, have just maybe finished your summer of ministry at camps. I was at a camp, and it was a fairly rustic camp. Uh, and so it's one of those camps where just kind of anything goes, you know, there's really no concern for, for safety and things like that. It was, it was great, you know, the perfect for high schoolers and college students. And so I remember one of the camp games that they introduced, and they had made this massive circle, right? They put cones out and made a circle, and uh, they divided us all into two teams, and then we all got one or two inner tubes that we were supposed to put around. Those big rubber, t- you know, that used to be tractor tire inner tubes, right? And so you put them around uh, yourself. And uh, so we're, all, we're wearing these inner tubes. We're all kind of going, okay, well, what, what is this game going to be? And so the, the game director began to explain that the goal was two people would enter the circle. And the goal was simply to bounce the other person out of the circle, to the death, basically, right? So uh, you just did, you could do whatever you wanted to do. You had to keep your inner tube on, but you, had, you could do whatever you want to do to try to get the other person out of the circle. And I was the leader of our team, and uh, because of that, there just tends to be a target on your back. Like, they just want to do things to get at you specifically. And so they had paired me up with the largest, strongest high school student that was there that week. He was on the wrestling team, a football player. He had me beat by at least 50 pounds, maybe 75. Big guy, right? And so they're like, all right, uh, Lance, you start us off. You can go up against him, and uh, we'll see how this goes. And so I'm kind of stepping into the circle like okay, here we go. You know, is, is your insurance company okay with this? You know, like, do we have everything? Yeah. So anyway, so uh, he just kind of stands his ground, you know, widens his stance and holds on to his inner tube. And I thought, well, I'm the lighter, smaller one here. So maybe my best bet is just to get up as much speed as I can and see if I can knock him out of the ring. Right? So it's the, uh, the immovable object with the unstoppable force, right? So, um, so I, you know, get up my speed and I start running after him with my inner tube. And of course, what happens when an unstoppable force collides with an immovable object? I lose, right? <laughs> so I go flying and uh, uninjured, thankfully, uh, but rolled over a few times and I remained in the circle. So that was... Uh, well, actually, I was kind of sad about that at the moment. It's like, oh, man, fully I had lost. So I had to get back up and keep wrestling with this guy, and I did eventually lose uh, that battle, but praise the Lord, uninjured. I was outnumbered. I was outstrength, right? I, I, I knew it was just a matter of time until the larger, stronger individual pushed me out of the ring. There are times when we face the situations of life and just feel overwhelmed like this. Maybe we feel like David on the battlefield with Goliath. 
But actually, that serves as a helpful example to us because on the one hand, you look at Goliath, the giant, with his inner tube. Oh, no, wait. Goliath didn't have the inner tube. That was uh, my scenario. You look at Goliath as the giant, the strong one, and there's David, the tiny little guy with some stones. And you see that and say, oh, he has no chance. But God. God steps in and fights for David and upholds his name and his strength before the people of Israel. And little small David wins the victory. You see, when we look to God and his strength and his love, he makes the enemy attacks seem absurd. It's not based on our ability or our strength. It's based on our God. So this raises our first question as we think about applying this to our lives. First of all, is God your rock and salvation? Have you made Him your refuge and your safe place? See, God has demonstrated His power and His love by sending His Son to die for our sins while we were yet sinners. This is the the greatest salvation that God offers to us, is salvation from our sins, our acts of unrighteousness against a holy God that cause us to deserve death and eternal torment and separation from God. And yet God, by His power and love, moved toward us, sending His Son to die in our place. Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose again? So that you can become God's child. So that you can be saved by the saving God. And forever enter His protective refuge. To become His child. And to be at peace with Him forevermore. That's the starting place for us. To make God our rock and our salvation. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are His child. You, you are within His protective care. But that doesn't mean we won't be shaken. We don't always think of God's protective care in our lives. There are some verses of Scripture that remind us that we can trust Him in our time of trouble. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, for instance, reminds us of this. He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say... The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? See, when we look to the Lord, we remember He is on our side. He is with us. What truly can the enemy do to us? And the answer is nothing. Romans 8, 31 and following says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? The rhetorical answer is no one. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, No one. It is God who justifies, so who can condemn? No one. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. So then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Right? We begin to go down the list of these questions and it's clear God has done it all. He's demonstrated both His power and His love in our salvation. And no one can touch that. You're secure if you've trusted in Christ. Because God is our Savior and our justifier, enemy attacks are absurd. No one can touch it. You may be slandered. But it only matters what God, your judge, knows to be true of you. 
you may face physical harm. But even through that, Christ is glorified. And the worst another human could do is kill you and send you to your eternal home with Him. And they can't do that unless it's God's perfect timing for you. God's perfect plan for you. You see, the love of God and the goodness of God dominate every detail of your life. Friend, in Christ, you are not a victim today. Many Christians walk around with a chip on their shoulder. We feel injured by the sins of others. We're victims of their wrongs. And so we think, woe is me. Dear one, you may have experienced horrible things. And I'm so sorry that that has happened in your life. But if you're in Christ, you are not a victim of the sins of others. You are a conqueror. You have one who loves you and gave himself for you, who paid for your sins and has redeemed you by his blood and has promised you access to the Father's throne for all of your life into eternity so that you may come boldly and confidently in your time of need. The attacks of the enemy look absurd when compared with the strength of our God. He may have allowed something hard in your life, but is completely from his love and completely for your good. Evil cannot touch you. As David goes on in the psalm, we come to the second time this refrain is repeated, but something has changed here. Here at the beginning of this refrain, David actually talks to himself. He speaks to himself. This is common with David in the psalms. Notice verse 5. He says in Psalm 62, My soul, wait silently for God alone. He's kind of preaching to himself here. Maybe as he thought about his enemies in verses 3 and 4, he found his own heart sort of beginning to be shaken. And so he's kind of like putting down his foot again. My soul, wait silently for God alone. Maybe you've been in those times when you needed to preach to yourself. But as David continues, he actually invites the reader to do the same thing. Notice verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And so here in the second section, David invites us to entrust our hearts to God. And through David, I think God actually invites us to entrust our hearts to Him. To pour out our hearts before Him. Just like David tells his own soul to steady itself on God, to be at rest, trusting in the Lord, so too we are invited to give the Lord our trouble and to find stability in Him. The one minor change in this refrain is that it's a command now to wait silently for God. Another change is in the next phrase, for my expectation or the word hope is used instead of salvation, which was used back in verse 1. From him, from God, is my expectation, my hope. See, David is looking to God, confident that God will provide. Verse 6 is extremely similar to verse 2, except for the final phrase, I shall not be moved. In verse 2, it was, I shall not be greatly moved. No big distinction there. David is confident that he won't even be touched or moved in the littlest bit. I will not be shaken. 
David looks to God in confidence. Verse 7 is a beautiful verse, and the New King James reflects it, but in the Hebrew, it begins and ends with the same phrase, in God. And you'll see that in the New King James. Some of the other translations do that. So it begins, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. And so he begins and ends with this idea, that's where his safety is found, in God. With the Lord is his protection. God as his rock provides the strength that David needs. And then in verse 8, as we mentioned already, David turns and almost looks at his reader and says, Now you, fellow worshipers of God, you trust in him at all times. In your ups, in your downs, trust in him. He explains what this trust looks like. He says, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge. A refuge is a safe place. It's a, a high tower apart from those who would do harm. It's a safe place for the very feelings and emotions and thoughts of the heart to be poured out to God. In fact, there's really nothing more difficult to entrust to someone than our inner hearts. And David says, God is that safe place. You take your heart to Him. You pour out to Him what is going on in you. You trust in God and you will not be shaken. The word Selah ends this section where we see we too are invited to entrust our hearts to God. It can be difficult to entrust something to someone else, something that's special to us. It's hard to put that in someone else's hands and see how they will treat it. In reminiscing about camp, I don't think it was that same camp. I think it was a different camp. But one of my campers didn't have a Bible with them for the week. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll give them my Bible. And, you know, there's something about your own personal Bible where you've taken notes and you've underlined things. And, you know, you generally, if you spend a little money on it, you try to take care of it and so forth. And so I can still remember it, ha- handing it off to him and sort of thinking like, okay, you know, enjoy, use this, and I and, uh, hope it helps you this week. And, uh, <laughs> And sure enough, you know, first chapel session and dropped off of his lap and wrinkled a few pages. Oh, by the end of the week, there were marks and drips from his drinks and a torn page and all of this. And not this Bible, another one. But in the end, it's just memories, right? Memories of how God used his word in someone else's life. It's great. It's what we have things for. But it's difficult to entrust our things to others, isn't it? What's going to happen What are they going to do with it? How's it going to come back to me? Is it going to come back to me? How much more difficult to trust people with the things in our hearts. To open up and share our inward thoughts and feelings and so forth. We have to be careful, indeed, whom we trust those things to. But God is our safe place. He is our refuge. He's the safe one, and He invites us to pour out our hearts to Him. So remind yourself to steady your soul upon God. Preach yourself this truth that He's trustworthy, that in Him you will not be shaken, and bring Him the troubles of your heart. You can trust in Him at all times. Remind yourself that he's trustworthy. He's a safe place. 
for you to hide. He's a safe place for the contents of your heart. So when you receive that bad news, go to the Lord. And it's not that you can't go to others, but start there. Talk with Him. When you feel betrayed, pour out your heart to the Lord. When you feel confused, when you're rejoicing, when you're hurting, go to the Lord. He is your safe place. As we come to verses 9 through 12, David begins to conclude the psalm, but he does so in a different way. And in this section, we see a contrast between mankind and between God. And I think what David is doing here is he's instructing us not just to trust God, but to trust God alone. God alone is the one with power and mercy. And so number three today, he instructs us to trust Him, to trust God alone. In verse 9, David looks to mankind. He talks about two kinds of men. He says, the sons of men of low degree and the sons of men of high degree. And the point here is not that there's any distinguishing, but that all of mankind, whether you're low or high, it really doesn't matter. And he says, you're a vapor. The word there, interestingly enough, can be translated vapor. You've probably also come across it in the book of Ecclesiastes, where all through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's translated as vanity. It means emptiness. It means nothingness. It's just lighter than air is the idea. And so he's saying all of mankind is just empty. You can't trust it. It's a lie, right? Even those of high degree that look like they have strength and power and so forth, he says in the second phrase of verse 9, it's a lie. And so he continues this idea of being weighed when he comes to the end of verse 9. It says, if they are all weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than, and it's the same word, vanity, nothing, emptiness, a vapor. So just collect all of mankind, put them on a scale, and air is heavier. It's kind of what David is saying here. Oh, (laughs) that's really encouraging, David. But understand the contrast that he's drawing here. Our hope is not to be put in mankind. Our hope is in God. He's the weighty one. He's the trustworthy one, not mankind. Verse 10 then encourages the reader. This is sort of the opposite of verse 8, where now, in verse 10, he's encouraging us not to trust in certain things. He first mentions oppression. And the idea here is that somebody is using their power, using their control, they're doing everything they can to assert themselves over someone else. Oppression. And we can understand how we could trust in that. We may not think of it in terms of I'm trusting in oppression, but we might think I'm trusting in my strength and my power to get what I want. Oh, let me talk to him. I'll set him straight kind of thinking. We assert ourselves. We use our power. We use our words. We use our manipulative tactics to do what we want. And we sort of trust in our ability to get things done. Well, if I was in charge... This is that idea of trusting in oppression, using our strength to get things done. Don't trust in that. Don't trust in your strength. We put you all on a scale, David says, and you're lighter than air. Don't trust in your 
strength. Next, he mentions in verse 10, don't trust in robbery. Again, like oppression, robbery represents sort of the end of what's going on here. And David says, well, you look at what others have and you think you could solve your problem if you just had what they had. And so you steal it to try to solve your problem. Robbery. So this is rooted in covetousness, isn't it, right? You look at what somebody else has and you think, oh, if I just had that, then my life would be fixed. Or if things went that way, then things would be better. So I need to take some of what they have to make my life better. He says, don't trust in that. And then he talks about riches in the final phrase. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Again, riches are a vain hope. They come and they go. They are not the solution to our problems. So verses 11 and 12 then draw us to the answer. God has spoken. And it may be that David had received some oracle from God, some divine prophecy or statement from God, and that that may be what brought about this whole psalm in the first place. What set David's heart at rest is this word from God. And I think the word from God comes at the end of verse 11, the beginning of verse 12, that power belongs to God and to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. God alone has power and mercy. David uses an interesting poetic phrase, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this. It's often used in poetry to sort of emphasize a point. It may mean literally that God said it once, but David is like, but I needed to hear it twice (laughs) because this was an important truth for me. That to God alone belongs power and love. That's what makes him trustworthy. But there's another statement at the end of verse 12 God, you render to each one according to his work. God is the judge. God is the one, not only who has power and love, but holds sovereign rule over the entire universe. And everyone, every man, everyone weighed on that scale and made lighter than air will stand before God and give account of his works. Now, there are two kinds of judgment mentioned in Scripture. There's the first judgment, which causes us to think about whether we are saved from God's wrath. Is my name in the book of life? Have my sins been forgiven? But even those who've trusted in Christ will stand before the Lord Jesus and give account for the way we used our resources. And that judgment will result in the kinds of rewards we have in eternal joy with Him. The same is true for those who've not trusted in Christ as Savior. They also will stand before God and before they enter eternity in the lake of fire will give account for their works and their degree of torment in the lake of fire will be based on their works. So indeed, God is the one who renders to each one according to His works. God alone has power and love. God alone judges the earth. God alone is trustworthy. There's something interesting in this psalm that I haven't pointed out yet. There's a little word in Hebrew, just two letters. And it can be translated truly or surely or only. You may have noticed that idea coming up a number of times in this psalm. In the 12 verses, that word occurs six times half of the verses. And every time it occurs, it starts the verse. 
It's at the place of prominence and emphasis. And so it's as if David, six times in these 12 verses, says, only he is our rock and our redeemer. Let me just show you how this would sound if you took the Hebrew word order. Notice in verse 1, it would begin this way. Only in God my soul is steady. Verse 2, only he is my rock and salvation. Verse 4, only from his high place do they consult to cast him down. Verse 5, only in God shall my soul be stable. Verse 6, only he is my rock and my salvation. And then verse 9, in contrast, he says, only vanity are the sons of mankind. Only God is our power and our love. Mankind is nothing. And so it's only in God that we put our trust. We trust Him alone. There are a lot of scams out there. Hopefully you've never been caught in a scam. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, and just this summer he had a, uh, an experience with a scam where somebody had actually used his identity as pastor to reach out to the people in the church and to begin asking for money. And the email said something along the lines of, I have a, a discreet request for you, so just keep it between us. But there's a need in the church, and if you could send me a few hundred-dollar gift cards, uh, I can help resolve this need, and uh, thanks for keeping this you know, quiet, something like that. And so this email went out to a number of people in the church, and there were a few in the church that began gathering the resources, and they go, oh, sure, yeah, we'll help out, we'll do something, and my pastor friend got a phone call, and uh, the individual on the phone began asking, well, where do you want me to send these uh, gift cards? And my friend's going, what are you talking about? What gift cards? Well, I got, an e- I got the email from you, you know, and so I'm, I'm working on sending those to you. He's like, There's no such email. So thankfully, he discovered what was going on and was able to send out to his church people, I didn't ask for any gift cards. It came from some wacky email address, but just claiming to be him and to be asking for money. And so thankfully, they got it stopped before anyone had given uh, the money to the perpetrator. There are scams out there. If I ever ask you for money that way, don't trust it. Give me a call, okay? We'll talk about it. So many scams out there, it's hard to know who to trust. And the psalm reminds us that God alone is where we place our trust. And so we must beware of trusting other things. In fact, even putting our trust in mankind can lead to trouble. Sometimes we set our hopes in a person, but it's not to be a, governor, a government official. It's not to be your spouse. It's not to be your pastor. It's not to be your children. They are not your Savior. I am not your Savior. Praise God. There's one, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by the Father, He's your Savior. Trust Him. Put your hope in Him. Beware of trusting in power. The solution to your problems is not more power for you. And without thinking about it, we often turn here first. We think, well, if I raise my voice, they'll listen to me. If I'm more persuasive, maybe I'll win the argument. Oppressing others with your power and control is not the answer. And in fact, when people try this on us, we often respond in the same way. Oh, you want to try to control me? Well, then I'll just control you back. 
We do not trust in oppression of others. We trust in God. We do not trust in our riches. Money won't solve our problems. We don't trust in covetousness. If I just had what they had, my life would be better. To covet what others have is to insult the perfect provision of God. In His goodness and His love, He's met all your needs. Keep trusting in Him alone. God alone is the one with power and love. God is the lo- alone is the one with all the strength in the universe. He can do all things, but not only that, He is love, and He moves toward us in our time of need to save us. And so, He is trustworthy. He destroys what is evil, and He does what is good. As you trust Him, you will be able to extend trust to others because you trust God not because you trust in men. And so, friend, I encourage you to trust in Him today. I want to close with a reminder that God is trustworthy because He is also the judge of the universe. He will set all things right. I talked about this briefly as we looked at the end of verse 12. We actually read about this judgment in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13, you find the following words. The Apostle John is describing what he sees in the future. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God is the judge of the universe. And friends, we will all stand before God. Some of us will stand before Him in Christ forevermore to be with Him in His joy. Others will stand before Him in judgment on the way to the lake of fire. Friend, I encourage you today, place your trust in God whose power and love has been shown to you by His sending of His Son to take your place on the cross, to experience death for you. And when He rose from the grave and conquered sin and death, He guaranteed that you too will be raised to life in Him if you'll place your trust in Him and that you will stand before God in the righteousness of Christ and know His joy and love forevermore. Would you trust in Him today? And if you have, keep looking to God, our rock and our salvation. His power and His love help us in our time of need so that no matter what we face, we can say with David, I will not be shaken. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Psalm 62. Thank you for David's trust in you. And we thank you for demonstrating your trustworthiness by displaying your love, your power, and sending your Son to be our Savior. 
as we walk through the difficulties and challenges of this life, we ask for your help. We want to trust you. We want to lean on you. We confess we so quickly turn to our devices. Turn us back to you. I pray that anyone who does not know Jesus as Savior today would place their faith in Him even now. That they would be right with you and experience your salvation. Help us to walk with you. And as we sang together in our final song, may all our days bring glory to your name as we trust in you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.